The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Are American business elites putting America second and China first? Listen to this podcast with author Isaac Stonefish to find out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Exchange, a conversation between Breaking Views columnists and the people who matter in finance, economics, and politics. I'm Pete Sweeney, Asia Economics Editor here in Hong Kong. Today, I'm chatting with Isaac Stonefish, who's talking to me from Washington, D.C. He's a former journalist and now CEO of Strategy Risks, a China consultancy. Uh, we're going to talk about the book he just published, America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. Uh, welcome to The Exchange. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. You have in one place cataloged pretty much every corporate and political leader who cozied up to Beijing for profit, or at least the expectation of profit. As far as I understand your analysis, the real problem, if I'm misstating, correct me, but it, it, it originated in a, in a sort of conspiracy to mislead American voters, namely you know, to convince them that opening up to China economically and financially would automatically lead China to democratize and join the status quo. Um, so that by serving their own self-interest, um, they were also serving the cause of democracy and human rights. Can you just walk us through that part first? Because uh, it kind of sets the stage for the rest of the things you say. Definitely. And I'll do a little prehistory of that. So first period, 72, Nixon and Kissinger in China to Tiananmen Square Massacre, 89, fall of the Soviet Union. That was the enemy of my enemies, my friend. Let's work with China against the Soviet Union. Then Soviet Union fell and images of the massacre were on televisions across America. And it was very hard to have a justification for working with Beijing. So I wouldn't call it a conspiracy, but I would call it at best a blithe disregard for the likeliest outcome, which would which was China would continue to be a repressive one party state. And what happened was business leaders and political leaders decided on this idea that to trade with China would mean to liberalize China. Condoleezza Rice, Clinton, Bush, a lot of the political and business elite would talk very frankly that we are trading with China to democratize them. That was a period that lasted until roughly 2005 when the then Deputy Secretary of State, Bob Zelik, gave a speech portentously titled Wither China, where he argued that China should be a responsible stakeholder in the global system. Now, China didn't want to be a responsible stakeholder in a system that was de facto created for U.S. interests and pushed back against that. And the new period we're in now just started roughly 2018, but for so long, it was stated U.S. policy to strengthen China. Maybe conspiracy is too strong, but in, in your book, you, you say that basically based on your understanding, a lot of the people in the White House over time did not actually believe this to be the case. Um, you quote an interview you had with Stapleton Roy, the ambassador to China from in the 90s, you know, who basically said that the idea was, and I quote, used to sell policy, not formulate it, um, yeah. which seemed very, this insinuation that there was this very cynical side to it that, um, you know, because China was clearly not democratizing on its own, that you know, there'd be this trickle-down democratization from from free trade and wealth creation. Um, but, but you may seem to make it think like a lot of people didn't actually believe this to be the case. I, that that is how I feel, and and it's always hard to ascribe motive. You know, it was I was surprised that Stabroy told me that on the record, and 
a lot of other people I talked to from that period said, oh, no, we were working for the good of America, the good of China. And it was a beautiful dream at the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting now, of course, is that it's pretty obvious under Xi Jinping that <laughs> the that that's democratization is not happening much much the opposite that a lot of things are going in reverse but what's interesting is you now have um, a class of business leader who pops up and and is actively advocating for kind of the chinese model as superior to the western one in some cases that's self-interested in other cases it seems to be sincerely felt hard to say um but what what do we make of this it's 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 quite interesting and different sort of from the cold war you know, where you had uh, in the Cold War, you know, there's massive red scares and, and congressional investigations into Hollywood and communists and blah, blah, blah. And in this case, the capitalists seem to be uh, happily selling the shovel, as Nikita Khrushchev said, you know, to, to the people who, who would bury them. You and I lived in China, and I don't know of any of these people who have. And there's this great mystique People will say things like, oh, Kissinger's visited China 120 times, and so he understands it better than anyone else. Kissinger could have lived in China. Uh, for Until 2020 and the pandemic, it was pretty easy to go and move to China. And so all of these people have their Orientalist long-term fantasies about China as a place where everything works and everything is planned so far in advance, and you can build a shopping mall or a convention center in three months, and they forget about all the other buildings that take years to build and, and fall apart soon after. It, it, it's mm. striking that these fantasies still persist today. I mean, so the basic premise of this is that people, you know, look out for their own interests, and like people like getting paid, and consultants like getting paid, and you know, you yourself admit in the book to to doing business with state-linked Chinese entities. The quid pro quo doesn't seem to work out all the time, and it seems to be paying off less and less, at least from my perspective. What do you think? I mean, there's a, like Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, <laughs> it could, what, he asked Xi Jinping to name his daughter for him? Um, and that didn't do anything, you know, for, for Facebook. And on the other hand, we have this huge trade spat between Australia and, and China right now, and tariffs getting lashed out, and like Rio Tinto, you know, who hired Henry Kissinger to help them fix relations with Beijing you know, still doing gangbusters business with China, despite the fact that like Canberra and, and Beijing are at loggerheads. I mean, you could ask Elon Musk, the world's richest man, who is walking a very fine line between Tesla, which is incredibly exposed to China and the Communist Party, and SpaceX, which is incredibly exposed to NASA and the Department of Defense, or Boeing, which is one of the companies that is most entangled with the top of the Chinese Communist Party, because that's who buys planes. Uh, you know, they're the ones who apportion aircraft sales and also is one of the major defense contractors in the United States. I don't think these tensions have gone away. I, I think what's really changed is that there is now more friction in the United States between senators and the people who elect them and the business leaders who in many cases not all but in many cases want there to be business as usual and i find the case with bridgewater so fascinating where one of dalio's co-ceos mccormick who was pro-beijing while he was working for bridgewater uh, leaves office goes to run for Senate in Pennsylvania and writes an op-ed in Fox News about how he's always pushed back against the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> yeah, well, Dalio is out there on the record being very, very pro. Um, 
assuming that this you see this as a, a problem as as the uh, and a solvable problem, um, what do you think a democracy with with free speech can or or, or should do? given the economic interests at play. I mean, China does pay well. Um, companies can make a lot of money there. I mean, you certainly don't make money by meeting with the Dalai Lama or, you know, recognizing Taiwan as Lithuania sort of did. Um, I, I, I would I would disagree with the general premise because so the numbers around China are rarely risk adjusted. And for every company that has been incredibly successful there, there are a lot of failures. And I think people focus a lot more on, say, Tesla than, say, Visa or American Express, um, who have market shares in China of roughly 0.0%. And right. I think the other issue is that there's this sense, oh, we have to be in China, but <laughs> the rest of the world's economy will always be larger than China's economy. And the thinking about it just in terms of we need to have all this focus on here doesn't really pay into the other costs of having all of that focus. But I mean, most of the problem seems to be coming from people who are making money in China or, or like like the, the people who get lose their shirts there tend to quietly go home. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, so so in terms of regulation, in terms of because you're talking about these these former government officials, you know, this revolving door where people come out of the State Department, go, you know, lobby for for Beijing, um, I mean, do you see any legislation getting queued up? So the legislation that's getting queued up that's changing the incentives is the legislation that's restricting American ability to invest in China. So the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which goes into four in late June and makes it basically illegal to import goods from Xinjiang, there is a high degree of likelihood that it'll be hard to import goods made by the PLA or by PLA-linked companies. It's certainly possible that that'll happen with Tibet as well. And you know, Tibet's a much smaller market than Xinjiang, but still is not insignificant. I, I think the legislation that we might see will be tightening of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, tightening of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but also the China Initiative, the Department of Justice uh, initiative to, to root out spies in the United States was such a failure for its racial profiling. And I, and I think that the next generation of that could go after other examples of corruption. So more white Harvard chemistry professors and less Chinese American MIT professors will probably be the next iteration. Okay. Well, you published your book at a very interesting time, um, and <laughs> uh, I hope events haven't really drowned out the point you're making. But I mean, I think in a, in a way, it's 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 landed perfectly because we now have this huge war in Ukraine, and it has been quite startling um, to me the degree of and the speed at which the West has moved to disconnect um, and disavow from Russia. Um, this massive retreat. Uh, do you see this as a preview of something that that might happen with China, or is the economic entanglement so deep um, that this this sort of thing is just unrealistic? I was also startled by the speed of the decoupling from Russia. In 2021, we traded roughly 25 times more with China than we did with Russia. At the same time, U.S. interests are so much more entangled with Taiwan and with the Pacific than they are with Ukraine, and 
China and Russia are on the one hand radically different polities and on the other hand being closely associated in the United States. And a lot of people are asking the question in the business community, in the government, well, if we shouldn't invest in a Russia that's invading Ukraine, we should probably also not invest in a China that's invading Taiwan, right? And and we're, we're not at a consensus of that view yet, but it really is bubbling up in ways that were far quicker than I was expecting. I mean, what's interesting is the Chinese response. But one thing that's pretty clear is that um, the operating assumption in Beijing, which is really hardened, is that that, that conflict with the states is, is inevitable and is coming some form of conflict. I mean, do you think this is going to end in war? I, I think it's going to end in war, but I think it's going to get there from a different path. I, I, I don't think that Beijing sees itself as a, a country that needs allies or that it has equals. And I think that this is a relationship of convenience. And I and I don't expect Russia, who knows, but I don't expect Russia to join in with a war on China's side against Taiwan or Japan. I, I think what this is, is a realization that the Russian conflict is a great distraction for the EU and the United States. And if Beijing can walk this very fine line of supporting the war while not being seen as fully supporting the war and trading heavily with Russia, but still trying to trade heavily with the EU and the United States and supporting the existence of the war and the continuation of the war with the hope that it'll bog down the United States and the EU so China will have a freer hand with Taiwan and with Japan. I think that's what they're trying to do, and I think it's incredibly difficult to do, but I think that's the cognitive dissonance that they're trying to engender. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Uh, Isaac, I'd like to thank you for chatting with me. I'd like to give a shout out to our production team at this point. That'd be Sharon Lamb and Thomas Shum. And to you, our listeners, please check out our articles, including my review of Isaac's book, which is on breakingviews.com. And listen to more of our podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, or the podcast app of your choice. Thanks for tuning in.